Welcome to the 81st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a public health update with Esther Chernak and then a discussion about the health, well-being, and resilience of first responders and essential workers with Chelsea Lenoble. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and also on Periscope. And I'd like to welcome all of our new viewers and listeners to COVID Calls. Thanks for joining us. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, also recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere that you get podcasts. If you're wondering what COVID Calls is, what it's all about, be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean, and it's also linked on the Facebook page. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I'd like to give a special shout out to all of my colleagues who are participating this week in the 45th Natural Hazards Workshop. This is produced by the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose director, Lori Peak has been on COVID calls twice, once by herself and uh, once on July 1st with Alice Fothergill. And you can check out those discussions archived as podcasts or on YouTube Live. Definitely worth watching and listening. And you can follow what's going on and the hazards meeting using Twitter. Just check out the hashtag HasWS, H-A-C-W-S, Hazards Workshop. As of today, July 13th, 2020, there are 12,988,624 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 12,376,147 cases reported Friday. Of those, 3,336,154 are in the United States, up from 3,158,183 Friday. There are now a total of 135,425 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, and that's up from 133,777 Friday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. But today I'm going to start with some good news uh, to start this week, and this is a story National Public Radio Today by Laurel Wamsley, and the headline is, New York City has its first day in months with no COVID-19 deaths. For the first time in months, there was a 24-hour period in which no one in New York City died of coronavirus. The New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene reported zero deaths on Saturday, but that number could change as death data can lag and new deaths could be confirmed retroactively at any point. The city's first confirmed coronavirus death was March 11th. Mayor Bill de Blasio called the milestone a statement about how this city fights back and people do not ever give in. It's something that should make us hopeful, but it's very hard to take a victory lap because we know we have so much more ahead. This disease is far from beaten, de Blasio said during a news conference Monday. And we look around the country and we look at what so many other Americans are going through and so many other states and cities hurting so bad right now. So no one can celebrate, but we can at least take a moment to appreciate that every one of you did so much to get us to this point. 
New York City has had 18,708 confirmed deaths due to COVID-19, as well as 4,615 probable deaths. 24 hours where no one died, the mayor said, let's have many more days like that. de Blasio also called upon President Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act to speed up the processing of coronavirus tests. Mr. President, all you have to do is say, I'm now invoking the Defense Production Act to expand lab capacity in the United States of America to make sure we have everything we need to get tests to people quickly. You can do that with the stroke of a pen. We need it not only here in New York, we need it all over this country. Trump previously invoked the act in March to boost production of masks and ventilators. The federal government has to step up now because now it's becoming a national crisis, the mayor said. We used to have almost no testing. Now we have more testing. But if you can't get the results in real time, it doesn't help you enough. Amid the huge reduction of coronavirus cases in the city, there is one worrying trend, a rising infection rate among young adults, particularly 20 to 29-year-olds. I understand for so many younger adults, it has been a really difficult time, cooped up, disconnected, away from loved ones, de Blasio said. I understand that people are just yearning to break out of that, but we've got to keep telling everyone, particularly our younger adults, how important it is to stick to what has worked, the social distancing, the face coverings, getting tested. The city plans to expand its outreach to young people through social media influencers, mask giveaways, and mobile testing vans. There will also be 10 new free walk-up testing sites in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens. As more people return to work indoors and go back to using the subways, de Blasio urged New Yorkers to wear face coverings whenever they are indoors outside their homes, even if other people aren't in close proximity. On Monday, the city reported a 2% positivity rating for coronavirus testing. 56 patients were admitted to the hospital and 279 patients were in intensive care units. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation today and I'd like to bring on my first guest and repeat guest, and I'm really thrilled to have her back on, Esther Chernak. Dr. Chernak is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health, Drexel University School of Public Health, and has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She is the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. Prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Esther worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Esther, thanks for coming back on COVID Calls. Happy to be here. So... I'd like to, first of all, just get your reaction about this story from New York. Is that faster than you expected to reach that milestone? Should we not be making too much of it? What can we infer from such good news? You know, I think I'm not sure it's fast. I think, uh, you know, New York's peak was probably April. So we're three months out. Um, I think what you know, it's certainly a measure of how far they've come. When you think about it, during the, their worst days, they were up to seven, 800 deaths daily, which is incredible. Um, I mean, Philadelphia has had a total of 1,600 or so deaths in, you know, since the pandemic began. And so New York had incredible disease burden. Um, it's a remarkable achievement. And I think they are determined to keep it there. I think they're trying to figure out a way that they don't ever have to return to what they went through in March and April and early part of May. And so give us a, a situation report for Philadelphia then. 
You know, Philadelphia is well over 25,000 cases now, roughly 1,600 deaths. And I think, you know, we are, we think at least in terms of the surge that we experienced in March and April that the worst is behind us. Uh, you know, I think there's been a stubborn incidence of disease where I think every day we're looking for, you know, decrements and we're not seeing that. We're seeing a stubborn incidence of roughly 125, give or take 25, uh, you know, cases reported daily. Um, we've had days where no deaths have been reported, no fatalities, and then we've had days where there have been a dozen. Um, but I think this has been a sort of a challenge in terms of how do we get below this this threshold of 100 to 100, uh, 125 deaths per day? Um, where do we need to focus the efforts, et cetera? That's been the challenge. The surrounding suburban counties have had a little bit more success. Uh, Chester County had sort of some uh, challenging areas among immigrant workers in the southern parts of the county, and they've directed some control measures there. Montgomery County, which is roughly 800,000 people, about half the population of Philadelphia, is down to around 25 cases per day. So uh, lower incidence there. But I think, I think Philadelphia is challenged by what to do. And I think you saw the mayor of Philadelphia delay the opening of some things like restaurants and bars. Um, last month, and there's a possibility that things will open up August 1st. I'm, I'll be surprised if, given what we've learned around the country, that we end up really going back to opening restaurants and um, business as usual, at least in terms of indoor dining and indoor events. Given given this recalcitrant number of 100 plus cases a day, it's too, too tough. So is that the cause and effect in terms of making decisions in City Hall? They literally need to bring that, as you said, a kind of uh, pesky number of 100 to 125 cases, that has to come down to zero or almost zero before the mayor would be willing to take that last step of opening, do you think? Are those you know, two there's, correlated? There's criteria for, you know, cases per 100,000 that you would feel more comfortable opening to so-called green phases, et cetera. I think, the, I think there's a combination of things, though. I, I think we've learned that it's not about absolute numbers because I think we're learning that as 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 few cases account, there are likely disease, likely cases out there that are asymptomatic. And unless we have really aggressive testing so that we feel that we've, we've got visibility on this thing, that we actually know what cases are in our midst, it becomes very risky to do things like allow indoor dining and things with masks um, that have the potential to augment transmission, particularly among asymptomatic cases that might be unrecognized. So I think they're looking for a number of things. Certainly lower case counts would make folks feel more comfortable opening things up. But I'm, I'm wondering if, in light of the experience across the country, whether anyone will ever feel comfortable opening up restaurants and doing things that, that would, you know, where you can't wear a mask and you'd still be inside where the transmission potential is so high. We've talked a lot about testing in our discussions, and I wonder, you know, something you said just brings me back again to this sort of seems like a perennial problem. I don't know if, if we're ever going to get a handle on it. Uh, so you're describing a situation where we still don't have enough testing and the antibody testing, and I'm hearing different things about the confidence in antibody testing. So even if we do provide enough tests, how confident are you that that gives us that snapshot and confidence to go into that green phase? It's hard to know. I, I do think that, you know, in other countries where anybody, where, where testing in general, certainly PCR-based testing is uh, much more available, they're, they're closer to normal. I mean, they're still in very mask-dependent interactions and things are somewhat limited in terms of capacity, but they're certainly a lot more normal than the way we are living. I think 
we have huge issues right now with molecular testing. Again, you know, with the surge in the southern and western states, we are now seeing wait times of between five and seven days to get a test result. That is mm-hmm. not thing in terms of acting on that information to identify contacts and trace them and quarantine those contacts. Um, There's um, vulnerabilities in the testing supply chain with respect to things like swabs and and, uh, reagents in the laboratories. And so I worry, I worry about our ability to really ramp up testing. And the, the tragedy in my mind, certainly here in the Northeast, where we endured the lockdown for three months um, and we didn't buy time for anything. You know, I mean, individual states have implemented, I think, common sense precautions, but the kind of federal support and initiative that we needed to really augment testing didn't happen. And we're seeing now that there's a surge in other parts of the country. The whole country is now waiting, um, you know, in terms of lab tests, in terms of molecular testing. There's really very, there's very little, there's very little given the system and still insufficient capacity. I think the word on antibody testing is evolving. I think the tests are better. I think serologic assays are a little are more specific and certainly sensitive, but they're still not being used to diagnose acute infection. They're useful, I think, to round out our study or understanding of the epidemiology in certain populations. They're very useful when coupled with molecular testing. Um, I think costs are a problem for many institutions that are contemplating integrating them into testing portfolios or testing strategies. Uh, so it's it's complicated. Um, and even if you were to do like an, if you had a specific IgM, which is the acute phase reactant, a serologic um, reactant reaction that you might use to identify acute infection, it's still seven, eight, nine, ten days post symptoms. So it's really not as useful as the molecular test to diagnose mm-hmm. acute infection. And we are still woefully short on supplies there. When you say cost is an issue, is there a sort of benchmark benchmark cost right now for a serological test? I actually don't know how much they are. I mean, I think I actually don't know how much they are. Um, I think many commercial labs have them in place, and there's lots of different companies. I don't know how much they cost. I, I'm thinking more in terms of, like, I think about it. I'm involved in some of the university-based planning, and what are this, the tests that we should be doing um, um, on students and various community stakeholders and. Right. Um, you know, one of the issues isn't so much the absolute cost of the antibody test, but it's the in- infrastructure. So somebody, if you wanted to do serologic tests on people as they arrive to campus and then periodically throughout a semester, um, you know, that requires someone to come into a healthcare facility, have a lab, a lab test drawn, a blood test drawn, and have that test transported to a lab. Um, and you need a, you need a health center to do that. And you need nurses and staff to draw blood and do all those things. Um, while they're also doing things like collecting molecular tests and the routine work of, say, student health or occupational health. So it's it's more than just the absolute cost of a test. It's looking at the entire resources that an institution has available. You said something a minute ago that was really striking to me about the, um, the we were buying ourselves time, everybody locking down in the Northeast. It's supposed to buy time, if I understand you right, it's supposed to buy time to catch up with all of the logistics and the supply chain. And that's what you were sort of waiting for. And there's so many moving parts here because it also assumes, I mean, we have these conflicts here about the nation and the states. And it seems like it's still never been resolved. This assumption that eventually the federal government would finally catch up with itself. And then you wouldn't have states in competition with each other for let's say tests. 
And now we find, I saw just Louisiana moved into third place today, Louisiana, Arizona, Texas, and Florida going back and forth with these really terrifying numbers. So where are you, where are you with that? What are you thinking about these, these states? Are they where we were in Pennsylvania and New York back in April, and we should expect a sort of a natural phenomenon, and that'll be in the rearview mirror by September, or... Or not? Can they go a different direction? Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, they're, in many respects, they are far worse than we were in Pennsylvania uh, several months ago. They may be worse in some respects than New York City was, you know, back in March. It's hard to know where this is going. Um, I mean, just the total numbers that California, that that um, the Texas and Florida are posting on a daily case count basis are astonishing. Um, you know, I think. It's interesting. I think one of the things that's really evolved in terms of our understanding of this disease is whether we can use this metaphor of waves, like with influenza. Um, you know, with influenza, period of transmission, and it's roughly 10 to 12 weeks. For reasons we don't fully understand, it sort of d diminishes. And, you know, we and go where and we have these periods between waves where there really is very little transmission in a community and you know it took us 12 weeks in pennsylvania and much worse in new york city uh to get a the big surge behind us and i think we wondered is this because you know but we did that we did that deliberately there was intentional policies related to social distancing we shut down many mm -hmm. things that didn't have to you know, didn't have to take place. Um, and we saw that we saw case counts respond to that. And, um, you know, I think people wondered, it was this just a wave. And I think what we've learned is that it probably wasn't a wave ending, but those actions made a big effort, made a big impact on transmission in community settings. When you, when people stayed inside where, you know, this is a human, this virus is a human seeking missile. Mm -hmm. And when you get this to infect, it will do that. And it does, doesn't seem to be hindered by changes in temperature or humidity. It's really human contact. And the thing that's tr that's concerning about Texas and Florida and Louisiana and many of these southern states is they've been very slow to aggressively implement some of the social distancing strategies that we implemented here in the Northeast. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen. I mean, they're doing a few things that make some sense, but it doesn't seem to be as aggressive a social distancing lockdown approach as some of the northeastern locations uh, undertook in in March, and I think we don't know what's going to work. You know, there have, there's an aggressive mask encouragement, uh, the closing down of bars, mostly. <laughs> you know, these are yeah, halfway kind. Of, yeah. I don't think we know if what we're going to see and if they'll have the kind of impact that the more draconian measures that the Northeast experienced um, had, you know, in terms of success. So it's hard to know what's going to happen. I, I just keep being um, reminded that we just can't talk about this as a national experience. This is a 50 state experience and then, and then regional and urban within, within that. Uh, and it's, so, it's just so hard to generalize. I mean, they are connected, uh, but there's, as you said, you know, we can, you seem to have some confidence about, you know, talking about the way things are going in New York and Pennsylvania. And then we talk about these other states. It's just much, it's just much harder to say. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls and right now. I'm talking to Esther Chernak and we have time to get a question in. If you want to, you can put it into YouTube live, or you can email me directly SGK 23 at drexel.edu, or you can put it up on uh, Twitter and just be sure to tag 
at US of Disaster if you want to get a question in. Dr. Chernak, you mentioned um, some of the serological testing and the implications of that for the fall reopening. I know that's something that's been on your mind. Um, so take us inside a little. We're going to have to do a whole COVID calls about this, at least one, I think. Um, but, I'm, you know, this has really been dominating news cycles now. The Secretary of Education is out uh, in the last couple of days giving interviews and talking about how it's crucial for children to be back in school. Universities have been in this dialogue since before they closed, really, um, about reopening. Help us think this through a little bit. What are the top things that you have in mind when we talk about reopening schools? Maybe start first with K-12, through and then if we have time, talk a little bit about universities. Yeah, I do think they're very different. I think the K-12 issues are very different than IHE or institutes of higher education. Um, so it's interesting, you know, watching these play out. And I think our understanding of COVID-19 in kids is really evolving. Um, it sure seems that with the youngest children, particularly kids under the age of 10, you know, almost the K-8 experience, um, you know, we, I think that children are, you know, they are less likely to become infected. When they become infected, they're less likely to experience severe illness. I think those are things we're learning. There are exceptions to that. There's the pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome that we're seeing, which appears to be rare. But for the most part, we don't see um, a lot of disease in young children, and we don't see a lot of severe disease. There are exceptions to that, for sure. But you know, in terms of sheer numbers, it's not a major issue. And we know for sure that um, very young kids don't do well with virtual education. They do a lot better pedagogically with, you know, in-person education. And I think there are ways to open schools safely for young kids because of that. Um, I think, you know, kids are less likely to become infected. When they become infected, it's usually adults infecting kids. It's rare for kids to infect adults. It doesn't, it's not like influenza where K through 12 schools or K through 8 schools fuel community-wide transmission. It's just, this appears to be different in terms of the way the epidemic is driven. Um, but I think there, So I think there are ways to open schools safely. And what I wish I was hearing was our goals are to get community numbers down. So we don't have a lot of community-wide transmission. And then I want to see Congress sponsoring the Open School Safety Act, <laughs> Safely Act, which mm. billions of dollars to schools, not for plexiglass and masks, Sure, for those things, but you know, to triple the teaching workforce so they can really have much smaller class sizes and shifted schedules and have you know fewer kids in the classroom exposure so that you know it really can be done safely. I know in Israel they opened up schools and things were fine for several weeks and then they decided to go back to normal and they started seeing clusters of cases in schools. And so I think there's a way to open schools safely in the context of diminished and, and controlled community-wide transmission smaller class sizes, uh, reduced schedules, um, you know, um, and then, and then, you know, masks for the, for the adults, the people who are truly vulnerable in those environments. But I think there's a way to do it. And I don't think it's like influenza where closing schools is, is part of what you do to just, you know, drive transmission down in the community. Um, so I, it's frustrating to me to hear the dialogues because everyone's saying, let's do it, let's do it. But it's not a matter of just, you know, letting the buses pick up the kids. It really is a matter of thinking differently about when we do education. But what, you know, that adage, never let a crisis go to waste. Wouldn't this be the greatest opportunity to really infuse our schools sure. with money that it needs um, to educate kids with smaller class sizes, more resources, et cetera. Do it under the guise of COVID preparedness, do it because of COVID preparedness, but then have this legacy 
of a much more robust school system. Um, I think just, just, different um, and and harder. <laughs> um, you know, you've got more vulnerable people. You know, young adults are more vulnerable to COVID, and you're talking about congregate living situations in many cases where you know there's great concern about fostering transmission. And so, I think that's more challenging. And the strategies that people are are, are discussing and re rely on point surveillance testing, usually molecular tests, to try to get a sense of disease within those settings and, and hopefully get enough information to react in ways that would curb transmission. Um, but that's a work in progress. And I agree, it's a good topic for another COVID call. Yeah, well, well, we'll definitely, definitely do that. I want to come back to this point you made, and I noticed that uh, you called for Congress to take action, not for the executive branch to take this action. And that seems... We've learned this by this point that that's maybe where this this could start. And just to, to go a little bit further into it, then if I understand you right. You're you're helping us see that maybe um, for children, this is a understandable, eventually but manageable, it seems, risk, but that the risk is more for staffs and parents and teachers. And so the kind of legislation that you'd like to see, the kind of interventions you'd like to see are really focused in that in that direction. Reducing class sizes, more teachers hired, more staff, anticipating that there will be illness among the older in that community, not so much among the children. Is that is that right? I think illness, among, I think illness can occur among both populations, certainly among the adults that work in schools, teachers and staff. Um, but, and also kids. I mean, we know that kids can become infected. Um, you know, they tend not to drive infection. It's the adults who give them the disease as opposed to vice versa. And so in, I think the way to protect everybody in that environment is to have fewer people in class, fewer people in a closed setting, um, so that you reduce, again, I, I mean, adults obviously have the potential to transmit to each other in that environment, but adults also have the potential to transmit to kids. And so the way you reduce that would be to have smaller class sizes, different, better ratios, to teachers, adults, to, to children. I see. I see. Um, and mask wear, the extent that that is possible. So you gave me a suggestion, you gave me a couple of great suggestions a couple of months ago for guests to have on, and one of them was Paul Offit, who was on uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a great conversation about vaccines, and um, he made a lot of assumptions about my basic understanding of, of biology, which I very much appreciated. He gave me the benefit of the doubt, uh, and we talked uh, really in depth about you know, some of the challenges of COVID-19 and the mysteries of COVID-19. One of the things that, and this I wanted to bring to you, I've been wanting to ask you about this. One of the things that he he really talked about was the timeline and that we really need to be prepared for a much longer timeline than any of our politicians. Most of our institutional leaders are not talking about these long timelines. And I know you were really in the trenches with public health and AIDS work back in the in the 90s in, in Philadelphia. And that seems to me, again, a sort of public health crisis that demands stamina. What did you what did you learn that we can take away from that now? I'm worried that people don't have stamina. We keep waiting for these magic fixes. September will come and go, we get back to school, it'll be okay, or the vaccine will come, everything will be fine. But maybe I'm just too risk averse. I'm just not so convinced we're gonna be rid of this anytime soon. How do we develop the tools we need to to take it over the long run? 
It's a great question. I, I don't know if it's analogous. Um, you know, 1995 was really the kind of watershed year for antiretrovirals. I mean, that was the game-changing year with highly, heart, highly active antiretroviral therapy. Um, so you think about how many years we lived with the epidemic before that. Um, where we really had very few effective therapies for folks. And, you know, it, you know, I don't know that there was a way that society became patient. I mean, I think what, to me, that mm. was characterized by really effective community advocacy. I mean, that was the era of ACT UP. And, you know, um, that's when Tony Fauci uh, became right. a because you know he was the he was sort of you know a point person for NAID and you know I think the affected community particularly the gay community in New York and the gay community um, in this in the U.S. Um, you know were activists in terms of pushing uh, FDA and related government institutions in this country to to accelerate drug development accelerate um, you know access to medications um, and and you know you ultimately got buy-in from places like NIH to do science and, and make a huge difference. And, you know, we like to criticize the pharmaceutical industry, but they changed the world when it came, when it came to HIV infection. I don't know that we have, um, I, I think, and I think we're living with the benefits of that, of that movement right now. I mean, I think science mm -hmm. is moving quickly right now. I'm not sure it can move more quickly than it's moving. Um, I just think it, vaccine development takes forever. There is no vaccine for HIV infection. What we have are highly effective therapies. Right. We don't have vaccines. Um, and, you know, vaccines in general take a very long time. I'm sure Paul told you, you know, 10, 20 years is, is a pretty common thing. For something like coronavirus, right. you know, there are some unique challenges. Um, you know, human coronaviruses tend not to generate long-standing immunity. We often see, you know, reinfection with human coronaviruses. There's issues around potential safety problems and the development of antibody enhancement, which could make infection worse. So there's going to be some really difficult things that are, you know, that the science is just going to, it's going to proceed as, well, as fast as it can, but it's, it's, it's not going to be, there's not much we can do. And, you know, it's sort of hard to know how do we, educate the public to be patient, that's going to be tough. You know, we'll be lucky to see some large phase two, three, phase three clinical trials that, you know, uh, will expand the number of vaccine recipients, but it's not going to be anywhere near what we need to achieve population level safety. Um, I think it's challenging. I think it's going to be challenging unless we have, you know, some, it would be nice to see some better anti antivirals on the, on the, on the, um, on the market or on the, Mm -hmm. so you can say, well, if you, people do get sick, at least we can make a, a dent in case fatality. We can have better sense of how to mitigate mortality, morbidity if we can't, morbidity, uh, can't mitigate mortality. Mm -hmm. But I think it's going to be tough because I think that, you know, these lo uh, the lockdowns are what's making people crazy, I think. And, you know, I think, I think what we need to do in this country is have the kind of federal leadership other other countries have in terms of ramping up testing so that you can have some semblance of normalcy. If you have rampant testing where you can test a lot of asymptomatic people and have a much better handle on where the disease is, you can function normally. You're still going to wear masks. You're, yeah. You might have limited capacity in interior settings and restaurants, but you're closer to normal life than we are now, which is we're just in blind reaction mode. And I don't see a way out of that in the, with the current administration. You are absolutely consistent on that 
point. And uh, so then people should just go back in time and follow Dr. Chernak's advice from March about this. Um, there's a big learning curve here. Thanks so much again for coming on and talking to, to us about it. And I've got you down. I want to get you in to talk about, we'll do a whole session to talk about the university challenge whenever we, uh, whenever we're ready. I guess the question is, do we talk about that in August or do we talk about that in December? But we'll sort that out. We'll sort that out later. Esther, thanks so much for coming on COVID Calls. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great. Always illuminating to talk to Esther, and I'm so pleased to bring in our second guest today on COVID Calls, Dr. Chelsea Lowell. She's Assistant Professor of Industrial and Organizational Psychology at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University Worldwide. Her research focuses on multi-level factors related to employee engagement, resilience, and recovery from work stress. She is part of a new human security faculty cluster within the College of Arts and Sciences at Embry-Riddle she works with communication and disaster management scholars to support high-stress occupations, such as healthcare workers and first responders. After earning her doctorate in industrial, industrial and organizational psychology from Florida Institute of Technology, she completed a postdoctoral, uh, postdoctoral fellowship with Clemson University and Prisma Health in Greenville, South Carolina. As an embedded scholar in the health system, she led resilience, leadership, and team development projects alongside physicians, nurses, and healthcare executives. I want to also uh, shed some light on the fact that it was announced today that she's a co-winner of the Natural Hazard Center Mary Fran Myers Scholarship. Chelsea, uh, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. So I want to remind people that you can get your questions in. Once again, you can just put them in the chat and YouTube live. You can send them to me by email, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put them up on Twitter, just tag at US of disaster. So I'd like to start our discussion the way I usually do. Chelsea, just ask you where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is there today. Sure. I am currently in Sanford, Florida. And so that's about 45 minutes northeast of Disney, um, or about an hour southwest of Daytona Beach. Um, I'm in Seminole County, Florida. So our current case number, um, I believe, is just under um, 3,300 with about 215 hospitalizations. And um, Recent information suggests about 20% hospital bed availability remaining. I want to also ask you, I've been talking with some of my recent guests about ongoing social protests related to the George Floyd murder. Can you give us a little bit of a sense if, if there's anything still going on where you are in that regard? Well, if you're um, familiar with Sanford, Florida, you'll know that this was the location um, where Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012. So there's sort of been a history of um, that sort of situation being very prevalent in the community's consciousness. I'd say that um, since June, there hasn't been much um, of those efforts really publicized in the media or on social media. So I know that the efforts are ongoing, um, but the the majority of the ones that were kind of gathering attention were occurring more so in June, um, both in, in Sanford and also the greater Central Florida area. 
So let's turn to a discussion of your really fascinating work. I'm so pleased that we get a chance to talk today about it. And um, let me ask you about a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in these kinds of questions, industrial organizational psychology, and some of the main areas that you've researched coming in? And then we'll turn to a discussion about how that might apply to COVID-19. So how did you get into this work? Uh, so industrial organizational psychology is a lot of a lot of syllables going on there, but it's essentially the psychology of the workplace. And I became interested in it in um, during my undergraduate studies, um, and was an intern in a military research lab in Orlando. And um, what I'm really interested in is health and safety in the workplace and the idea of, of well-being and resilience. So um, when it comes to how that's relevant for disasters um, or the current pandemic, it really is about the different levels of the organization. So the health and safety of the individuals, um, the effectiveness of teams, and then kind of what the culture of the organization is as a whole. And so um, during my postdoc, I worked closely with leadership development and team effectiveness um, kinds of topics where we're interested in what are what are sort of the outcomes, well-being versus burnout when it comes to different stressors that ind individuals are facing. And so when it when it comes to the pandemic situation that we're all currently experiencing, um, that the stress is is really key there. And so um, any sort of disaster situation is going to create additional burden on first responders who already have such a kind of stressful experience and and are in what we might consider an extreme context. So it's sort of just a natural progression of being interested in the workplace and how that relates to health and, and well-being, and then what that looks like for more extreme types of situations and occupations. So take us a little bit inside how you're thinking about this in terms of COVID-19. For example, what are the kinds of markers that people look for, let's say for first responder, or maybe a nurse, um, to understand that they're, they're under too much stress, that they've, they've reached a point that's not sustainable anymore. I mean, I, I've uh, followed this a little bit in, since 9-11, and I remember at that time after September 11, the very strong professional culture of firefighters not to receive any kind of mental health um, checkup. And there was a, a little bit of a change at that moment. It became sort of mandatory. And one of the problems was if you ask the firefighters how they're doing, they always said, well, I'm doing fine. This is part of the job. So I'm curious as to, you know, is the first responder the right source of this information? How do you how do you make sense of that problem? That's such a great point. And I think one of the big issues is with the idea of burnout. Um, so much of it ends up reducing your capacity to know how you're doing in any moment. And so with um, so my experiences often been with uh, healthcare workers, so with oncology nurses, and um, there is an element of it that sort of the way that you're mentioning is kind of what they signed up for. It comes with the territory. It's what they expect and are, in, you know, that's what they signed up for in the first place. Um, and so because of that, it can be really hard for individuals in any sort of occupation to be able to understand um, what those indicators might be. Um, and I think that 
the really good question you raise is, well, then who might be the best person um, or entity to look to to kind of find that out? Oftentimes, supervisors, depending on the level of involvement a leader might have with their team, are able to kind of get a bigger picture sense of what's going on and what different uh, employees are experiencing. They might see different patterns in how they're behaving. Um, there might be other indicators like um, how fatigued they might appear when they come to work. Um, there's a the idea of emotional labor that already comes with a lot of these professions where um, having to deal with the emotions you experience, but also how you display your emotions and how you react, that can be really draining. And so another indicator might be um, more frustration that they're expressing. They might have sort of a shorter amount of patience. There's a lot of different um, indicators of what burnout might look like. And they really do vary based off individuals and the setting, but sort of what kind of the takeaway of that is that it's important to make sure to ask those individuals and their supervisors sort of get a sense of the overall culture of that organization to see what are the factors contributing? What are the demands that they're experiencing? Um, because if we think about the perspective of, of stress at work, there's some, there's the really popular um, job demands resource theory, which essentially says that well-being or conversely burnout is a function of the demands of one's job and the resources you have available to be able to do that job. And so um, I, I kind of like to think of it as three main things where there's first sort of the outcomes or the goals. What are the objectives that the individual employee or the team is trying to achieve? And then what are the uh, areas of adversity, the, the challenges, the demands that they need to overcome or accomplish to achieve those goals? And then the third thing is what do they have at their disposal to help them overcome those challenges and help them achieve those goals? So when, while the kind of context of any occupation or um, first responder group or disaster management group might vary, that sort of equation still exists and would be what I would think mm -hmm. that would it would be most important to look at what are those factors. And, um, you know, there's some there's some literature to suggest that challenges and, and adversity and stressors can be high as long as resources are high as well, then burnout is less likely mm -hmm. to become an issue. Um, so especially with these occupations where a lot of this is what people are expecting to um, experience at work. As long as they have those resources that they need, there's, you know, they're more likely to be engaged and have higher levels of well-being. It's especially when those those demands are high or they are really dynamic and and less um, likely to be predictable or expected. And then the resources to meet those demands are also low. That we have a lot of the problems that are more likely to occur. Does that insight carry over from? let's say, the sort of normal daily disasters of being a paramedic or, let's say, being a nurse. I mean, for most of us, those would be intolerably high-stress jobs, but that's part of the job. Um, but when you extend it into a, a surge situation like the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that's the triggering that's the – is that the triggering effect when resources are depleted very quickly in that regard? Because – as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, there's the sort of normal problem of being under-resourced, but 
But then there's the emergent problem of under-resourced, which just comes with a surge. Mm-hmm. Help, help me think about that a little bit, because these temporal things, as we move from daily disaster to disaster, like the pandemic, are sometimes hard to track. Absolutely. And I think the key that you're kind of getting at there is the temporality of it. So um, similarly, if we think about what organizational or even individual or or team resilience looks like in organizations, um, you have sort of along the, the idea of a process where first there's the capacity for resilience towards some form of adversity. And that can be individual characteristics. Um, It can be resources that exist before the adversity. And that's kind of where I think you're getting at with the the more day-to-day demands um, and stressors and experiences and even resources that first responders have um, kind of before a pandemic or other type of disaster is likely to occur. And then once it does occur, there are likely to be fluctuations in the resources and demands. So demands might increase, resources might decrease. But also there are processes that the individuals, teams, or organizations can engage in that help to mobilize resources or acquire new resources and put them into action that might not have existed prior to the adversity. So it really is this sort of dynamic interplay Mm. of What's really important is is being able to identify the needs and and sort of um, assess and pinpoint the adversity itself and the impact it has on those organizations. So if you're able to sort of accurately diagnose what the adversity is and why it matters, then it's more likely you'll be able to mobilize the most appropriate resources and engage in the most appropriate processes to address that adversity. Of course, that's also assuming that those those resources are accessible in the first place. Um, but it really for, it takes that kind of initial assessment to be able to understand what needs to be done and then move forward. And the, the sort of resilience trajectories or um, outcomes that we might be interested in really come from that. Well, let's bring that to ground with COVID-19 a little bit. Do you have a good handle on the sort of pre-pandemic expectation of resilience of, let's say, um, uh, people working in the emergency department of a hospital or an ICU? We, have, we already have a good sense of, of uh, kind of the uh, norms of how much stress they can take before you start to see burnout. And then so that then you can recognize the burnout when you see it in the midst of, of COVID-19 or no, we're having to learn that literally as we go in the midst of the disaster, building the plane while we're right. flying it from a research perspective. That's a great question. I think that um, I don't think that we have a full sense of what exactly um, burnout necessarily, how it emerges and what it might look like um, in the context of a pre-pandemic situation. And then, of course, as it's ongoing now, I think one thing that um, has sort of been a previous focus when it comes to burnout has been very much Uh, the onus on the individual. So a lot of times there's this idea of, well, Mm -hmm. if you've experienced some sort of traumatic event, you need to go and see someone for your mental health. And you need to make sure that you sleep enough. And you need to make sure that you exercise when you're stressed and make sure that your physical fitness is what it needs to be for a first responder job. And you need to make sure that you're eating healthy in your free time. And so I think that a lot of times... Uh, burnout becomes more of a 
of a disease of isolation. There's this idea that you, you know, you're emotionally exhausted. Um, you, you don't necessarily see your job anymore as something that you are capable of, of achieving. You think that your efforts don't matter anymore. And so that tends to be paired with this idea that you're going through it alone, even if you're not. And most, most often you are not. So I think that one big challenge uh, is moving toward the idea of what well-being and engagement and lack of burnout looks like within a team, because teams can be such a huge source of social support, which ends up being a significant buffer of burnout. So I don't, I don't think we necessarily have the greatest sense, and I think it has been sort of this tradition of the individual being the one who needs to figure it out for themselves. And there are interventions um, beyond just the individual level that have been found to be more successful than just individual level interventions. But because there's so many factors going on, re resilience and well-being is really multi-leveled. It's not something you can just look at at a single level of analysis and be able to have all the answers. And because of that, it gets really complex. So then when it comes to adding the stress of the pandemic, we are sort of in uncharted territory where we don't necessarily know what the dynamics of workload changes or demands and stressors will do or the effect that that, that, that will have on first responders who are already going through um, maybe staffing shortages, cultures mm -hmm. in the organization that don't really uh, um, enable people to get the mental health care that they need, or, or kind of how you mentioned earlier, that they might not even be aware that they need it in the first place. So what are the kind of um, markers you're looking for? Is it people calling out of work first? Is it, I mean, the most extreme ones obviously would be suicide, um, uh, addiction, um, self-harm, things like that. But short of that, um, do you have very um, precise kind of social science instruments to be able to, to read an organization in real time and begin to say, look, we're approaching stress levels here that need either greater resources or interventions of, of some type? Because it seems to me, as I'm been following this, um, that's absolutely essential in every emergency department across America today. Right. I, I think that there are some preliminary tools that do exist. There's, I mean, if we're, if when we talk about some of the more severe situations like suicide um, or substance abuse, that to me, that's really far down the burnout trajectory. And we really need to kind of find a way to identify those indicators more upstream. There are some initial, um, there's some initial evidence that there are sort of patterns or profiles of the, the three main indicators of burnout being that emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a reduced sense of personal accomplishment, that, that the, the levels of those might look different at different periods of time before burnout fully develops. But that is still a newer area in the field to look at it from that perspective. And because so much of it varies um, within individuals and organizations, there aren't necessarily um, sort of standardized indicators or ways of identifying that yet at this point. And the other challenge, too, from a methodological perspective, is that some of the most common um, ways to measure this have been surveys. 
uh, self-report measures. And the kind of the main problem with that is that these individuals are already experiencing so many demands and so much stress that to ask them to fill out a survey right. is just one more thing. Now fill out and a survey. Exactly. Right. And right. so the the kind of responses that you might get to that to those surveys even though that information is so critical to figuring the situation out and being able to provide support, it's really a hard ask. And conversely, some technology approaches, things like um, wearable devices or other objective measures of stress, they really they they need um, kind of in-person contact. You have to either either you have someone that already has a Fitbit and you can you know sync to their device. Um, or you have to have the funding to be able to purchase devices and have them um, sent to first responder group or something like that, which also has its own challenge of validity of those devices. So the, the method aspect of it makes it a big challenge as well. So you're part of this interdisciplinary research cluster there at, at Embry-Riddle. And I wonder, I was thinking before we had this conversation that that seemed to indicate you talked about the community turn to, to think about stress in an organization, not in terms of individuals, but somehow community and make use of the community. Are you seeing that with social science as well? Have we shifted away from the idea of the lone social scientist working on this? And now there's a sort of a team interdisciplinary. I mean, it's a fascinating approach. Yeah, I think um, there's this, and this idea of um, convergence from NSF that the greatest uh, challenges that the world is facing today cannot be solved by one discipline alone. And I think that that's absolutely becoming um, more salient in the minds of social scientists and other um, scientists working toward these issues. So what's really exciting about the center that we are developing is that it is a combination of different disciplines working toward um, helping to build resilience in emergency services um, in a way that I don't really know that has been done before from a faculty perspective. Um, and we're working with the emergency services degree programs within the College of, College of Arts and Sciences as well, um, where we have a, a Bachelor of Science and Master's of Science emergency service program where we're, we're developing some of that training pipeline that's meant to build that culture of well-being and, and acceptance of mental health um, discussions. And so being able to kind of pair the academic side of things with the research and really asking the practitioners and the first responders in the field, what sort of training do you need? And then how can we work together? I think that's absolutely taking that community approach. Um, and I mean, NSF is really emphasizing that with the civic innovation grant program that they have going on right now. Uh, I don't think that it's enough, but I think that it's the it's a really great first start toward that type of work because I just I I don't think that we'll be able to develop resilience at the scale that we need, especially in a situation like the one we're in today, without having so many different voices and experiences and areas of expertise at the table. It just seems so important to me that we don't um, 
build up the myth of the heroic researcher to go along with the myth of the heroic uh, doctor or nurse because it just leads to this kind of unrecognized stress. And again, I'm really learning a lot from your sort of focus here on moving away from the individual in terms of self-reporting or even their own capacity to understand their condition diminishing as the stress increases. So we're almost up on time. I want to remind people you can get questions in. You're listening to COVID calls and my discussion with Chelsea Lenoble about stress and first responders. But I would re be remiss, since you're there in Florida, if we didn't have a bit of a chat about Disney. Um, so what are they thinking? Mm, Disney. Well, as a native Floridian, I um, obviously this is a topic that is on a lot of minds. Um, some of the, the work that I've been doing with the University of Central Florida has been focused on health and safety for the hospitality industry. And so this is really where the idea of um, the decisions that Disney is making come into play. And uh, we know that Disney has begun its reopening efforts and that there are plenty of measures that they're putting into place to um, secure the safety and well-being of not only the guests, but also the cast members. What we don't know is how this will turn out. It's never happened before. Disney has not experienced something like this before. And so um, I've, I've heard the term before that this really ends up being somewhat of a, a large experiment on um, the extent to which these measures put into place will really be able to be effective. I think that Disney is under a lot of pressure from multiple sides to make their decisions where some people think it's way too soon. Some people think they should have opened ages ago and they really have a lot, you know, there's the, I think the unemployment rates in uh, Orange County and Osceola County, which is where Disney is located, from from December 2019, they were I think about two percent, and now they're they're up to about mm. 25 to 30 percent. So wow. there's you know be, especially because Disney is responsible for the employment of so many individuals across not only their theme parks but their resorts and hotels and things like that. That you know they don't want to have to keep people on furlough or or lay off more workers. They want to be able to do things that are going to be to the benefit of their staff. And we just don't know what those measures will do in terms of adding new stress. A lot of them emphasize increased cleaning, sanitation. And we I don't we don't know what sort of that increased burden might look like for for the workers there. We don't know what the increase, the changes, the the kind of having to be more cognizant of these issues related to health and the virus, what that will do over time to the employees and the cast members at Disney. It's just a big question mark at this point. I don't like to hear the word experiment um, and Disney in the same sentence. I mean, I'm really I'm really worried about that. And it seems to me there's just a be such a small um, toleration for error here. I'm wondering how they're getting this this confidence. But as you point out, also not just the direct employment, but the ancillary employment in the region must be tremendous. And hotels and and restaurants and gas stations and everything else that feeds that mm -hmm. that economic driver. Yeah, and it's not the only area that that is experiencing that sort of pressure. I mean, Disney has a really long history of putting a lot of effort into health and safety issues. So in that regard, having to think about those things is not necessarily new for Disney. And so, you know, of a lot of industries, 
they might be some of the more well-equipped ones to be able to come up with solutions mm -hmm. that others might not have thought of before. And there are other industries that are also facing similar issues related to their workforce. Um, I, and they're not the only ones that I might suggest are operating similarly to an experiment of some sort. Um, that's very relevant now for discussions about reopening schools as well. So they're not the only ones. Sure. They, they might be better equipped than a lot of others at figuring this out. And I, I, I have no, no sort of other evidence than to suggest that they're really trying to do this for the benefit of uh, their employees and the guests that really want to get back there. Well, of course, I absolutely hope that you're that you're right about that. And I suppose there's a way to look at this that um, to the extent that they get it right or the kind of measures they put in place that that work, um, it, you'll find the state of Florida following them. I mean, I don't see Florida leading right now. So there'd probably be some mismatch between the standards that Disney is setting for itself versus the state of Florida. I was floored. I don't know why I had never thought of this before, but somebody told me a few months ago that Disney has its own office of emergency management. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they're big enough. I mean, they sort of operate as their own municipality in a sense. So one must assume that they've thought through these many different, these many different points. They really have to you expect to be doing a study. <laughs> I mean that there, we definitely are working with the hospitality industry in central Florida um, I'm not personally working, um, with a study with Disney at this point, but I mean, you just have to think that, that Disney sort of has to be good at this. There's the, the Disney brand is, is so strong and has a sense of trust, um, that they've, you know, for, for a long time have, have really had to keep safety standards above what might be otherwise the expected norms so that, they really can generate the sense of trust in what the Disney experience might look like. So we're almost out of time, but I know you were awarded an NSF Converge uh, Rapid Grant. Just as we close out here, could you give us just the elevator pitch on, on that project and what you plan to be doing? Sure. It came from some of the work with um, the professors at University of Central Florida with hospitality, where we wanted to see what sort of resources are organizations providing to their employees to help them navigate this situation. And as we all are also faculty at institutions of higher education, the question came of, well, what are our institutions doing? We see a lot on social media of other uh, faculty and students and their experiences. So that kind of brought this, this project to light where we're interested in understanding how organizations are communicating to their faculty and students about the changes and the impact that that has over time on their well-being as well as sort of teaching and learning outcomes for all sorts of disciplines and of course NSF is very interested in what that might look like for STEM education as well. So we're we're wanting to ask um, and kind of give a give a microphone to the faculty and students let them share their voice and their experience so we can learn more about what has worked well, what resources do faculty and students have or have been provided that are really helpful 
what do they think would be helpful that they've not been provided? And then our, our goal is to be able to sort of feed that information back to uh, higher education as a whole and be able to tell them some of the potential you know, best, best practices for recovering now and for being able to be better prepared in the future. We, we need that research. Uh, how soon can you have it? Can you have it? We need it right now. Well, it's a rapid grant. Absolutely. Rapid grant does. It um, is a rapid grant. Okay. That's what it's supposed to do. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you uh, so much for this discussion, Chelsea. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to COVID calls today. And again, good luck to everybody at the Hazards Workshop and enjoy the rest of this week. You've been listening to COVID calls and you can tune in every weekday at 5 p.m. I want to also thank Esther Chernak for joining us as well. And congratulations again, Chelsea Lenoble, on winning the Mary Friend Myers Scholarship from the Hazard Center. Tomorrow, we'll have Scott Miles on at five o'clock and really looking forward to that discussion with Scott. We'll be talking about resilience and how also we can turn disaster research into practice. And that's, of course, a perennial issue that we discuss every time we talk about disaster research at the Hazards meeting. So thanks again, Chelsea. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. Talk to you tomorrow.